Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Welcome. It's lovely to be back with you. All re-energized, rejuvenated for 2017. I've had my month off, summer holiday or summer vacation, as many people around the world would call it. Not an awful lot of summer to speak of, really, where I am here in Wellington in New Zealand, but a good amount of vacation, a month of it. And we've done all sorts of things. I may well talk about that a little bit later. You know those old school essays that we used to do about what I did on my vacation? But I'm not going to do too much of that today because we have an extremely long podcast as we play an interview that Tara Briggs from the Ability Stories podcast has done with me on some interesting subjects and we will talk about those in just a moment but it is a long interview so I won't hold things up too much. What I do want to tell you though is a couple of things. First if you would like to be in touch with the podcast it's always great to get your feedback and the email address here is theblindside at mosin.org. That's the blind side all joined together at mosin.org and we're already lining up some very interesting interview subjects for the podcast this year. I also want to tell you that if you like Talkie Talkie podcasts, and presumably you do if you're listening to this one, then Mushroom FM has a new global call-in show that you may be interested in. In New Zealand, and I think England too, I think it's an English expression, when people get invited over to someone's house for a cuppa, it's normally a cup of tea. I guess these days it could be a cup of coffee as well. And you sit down and have a bit of a chat about this and that usually. So a cuppa at the Mosins, hosted by both Bonnie and me, will be a show where we talk about all sorts of things and there are many ways in which you can call in live on the show, which airs on a Thursday night at 9pm US Eastern Time, and you can have your say and chat with us and other listeners. If you would like to find out more about the show and all the ways that you can communicate with it, then the website to go to is www.mushroomfm.com slash kappa. That's mushroomfm.com, no dashes or anything like that. It's just all joined together, slash C-U-P-P-A. And I hope that you will join us for a cuppa at the Mosins. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern every Thursday on Mushroom FM. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. Let's get on with it because we do have a very long interview to play you and it's a turning of the tables today because I'm the one being interviewed and I believe I first heard of Tyra Wiseman as she was known then when she would participate in ACB radio shows after I established that back in 1999. I lost track of Tyra for some years and then last year, now married and called Tyra Briggs, she bought my Armadeus Pro tutorial and talked with me about starting her own podcast called Ability Stories, which she now has. What I like about Tyra's work is that she has a genuine interest in other people. She told me the other day she was nosy, (laughs) and maybe that's what she needs to be a good interviewer. A lot of podcasters who think that interviewing is easier than it actually is fall into the old trap of having a preset list of questions, which they use like a checklist, They're not listening to the answers. They're not ready to tease out something interesting that the interviewee has said. Tyra's interviews are so good because she is listening and she is thinking about the responses that she's getting. It makes for compelling 
radio and an old broadcaster told me once, if you're in New Zealand, you will remember Sir Paul Holmes told me once that if there's one thing that people can't avoid hearing, it's an intimate conversation. And there is a kind of an, an intimacy about the conversations that Tara puts together. Tara and I were chatting one day last year after I'd given her some technical advice and the conversation was quite wide ranging. And as part of that conversation, it came up that I was once a Christian, but for the last 30 years have been an atheist. And this obviously stuck with her because a few months later, after she got the podcast up and running, she sent me an email and she said, Jonathan, could I interview you for the podcast and would you talk about being an atheist? Well, I get interviewed quite a lot by various podcasts and media outlets, but I've never before been asked to discuss this subject. I nearly did. I did agree to participate in a podcast that was hosted by a Catholic priest who wanted an atheist to talk to, and I was really looking forward to that. And sadly, the person who hosted that podcast died before we had a chance to put the podcast together. So that would have been a very interesting conversation that I would have enjoyed. As I mentioned in the interview, which we'll play in just a moment, atheism is not at all a big deal here in New Zealand, where I live. We had atheist prime ministers for 17 consecutive years. When I recorded this with Tyra back in December of last year, we still had an atheist prime minister. He's subsequently resigned, and we now have our first Christian prime minister in nearly 18 years. He happens to be Catholic. It's much harder, though, to be an atheist in America, which is why, after thinking about Tara's request, I agreed to do the interview. We live, it seems to me, and you have to understand this is my perspective, but I I believe we live in a strange world where there are countries that make it more difficult for people who quite reasonably point out that there is no evidence that there is a personal God controlling our planet – There is no evidence that virgins have babies. There is no evidence that a book written by a less enlightened civilization is the work of any kind of God. It's a very topsy-turvy world when we atheists or those tending to that view feel that they have to remain silent and tolerant in the face of organized religion with its big money, massive political influence and ancient superstitions. I'm extremely proud of my journey, which has been a long one and full of discoveries, and I'm proud to be an atheist. And I dedicate this interview, and I did this interview, for those who, deep down in their heart of hearts, know that religion just doesn't add up, that billions of lives have been lost over the years because of arguments over different gods, That when someone says you're going to burn in hell in eternal fire just because you don't worship the same God that they do, that kind of behavior needs to be called out as the hate speech that it is. Atheism isn't the only subject that we talk about in this extended interview. Tara does a great job of discussing my background and upbringing and motivation and other things that I haven't been asked about very often. If you enjoy the interview, I highly recommend seeking out and subscribing to her Ability Stories podcast. You can search for Ability Stories in any good podcatcher. There are one or two issues with some of the audio in this podcast. I've done my best to do some processing to tidy them up. 
I hope that you enjoy this chat that Tara Wiseman conducted with me for Ability Stories back in December of last year. You had this experience when you, well, actually your family did. You weren't there yet. Your parents were greeted by a blind social worker. And I love that because I felt like, um, I felt like everybody should have that experience. (laughs) Um, Talk about that. Like, how did that end? Did you ever meet him? Yes, I did. In fact, when I became president of the blindness organization in New Zealand, he was still involved. And so I met him that way. And I think it is important because when a blind child comes along, it can be a pretty harrowing experience for a parent. It was a bit different in my case because I have an older brother who's blind as well. And so they were told then that it was just a one-off thing, one of those genetic quirks. So they weren't necessarily expecting another blind child, particularly given that they'd had three sighted children in between. But, you know, they they had some idea of what it was like to bring up a blind child. Um, And in fact, I think it was when my brother was born that they first met this blind social worker. So that was really important at that stage because my mum and dad were quite young when they married and had children. Everybody wants whatever the perfect baby is. And when you find that it has um, a significant disability and you've never encountered that in in your life before, uh, you've led a fairly sheltered life, I suppose, and blindness comes along, just seeing an adult coming into your house, feeling well-adjusted, maybe drinking a cup of coffee, eating a meal, whatever, functioning, knowing that this guy is married, it all just helps a young parent to know, look, it is going to be okay. You know, my my blind child can do things and grow up to be a fully functional adult. Yeah, I I remember also on your presentation, you talked about um, your parents had high expectations of you. They let you bonk into the rose bushes on the side of the house. Um, Why why do you think that happened other than meeting a blind adult? Because I think people who get raised with those high expectations, they grow up and become successful and people who don't are going to struggle. I think part of it, and I know this now as a parent, is that by the time number five, as I was, comes along, and <laughs> there was also like nine years between number four and number five in my family, you're a little bit more relaxed as a parent. I remember when my first child was born, my daughter, who's now 20, she's going to be 21 next year. And I remember every time she'd snivel or something, you know, I'd be up and wondering, what's the matter? And if by chance she was sort of bouncing around when she got a little older and she'd say fall off the bed, well, it was like a major crisis. By the time number four came along and you'd sort of pick them up, give them a hug, (laughs) make sure nothing was broken and move on with your life. So I think that I, I was very lucky that I was number five and they were pretty relaxed. But also I think part of it was my personality. I've always been kind of irrepressible, and sometimes I think that's just it's just how you the, the the personality you're inherited with. Before I was a parent, I used to have this silly notion that somehow parents are like kids are like this blank slates, and that parents can completely guide them and all the sorts of things. But having had four children myself, I know that they come out with their own little personality types and their quirks and. And, and stuff like that, and you can help steer things, but they still have their own tendencies, uh, whether they're, they're timid, whether they're sensitive, all those things. And I think I just happened to be somebody who was a bit tenacious and um, wanted to get out there and do stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's awesome that you had parents that supported that. Yes. Um, and then you went, you went to the school for the blind, and you, you lived at home while you went. Yeah, I was very fortunate. My parents bought a house, and they're not wealthy people. You know, my dad was a poultry farmer and um, provided for us very well, but he developed heart disease quite early in life. He had his first heart attack in his early 40s, and the doctor said, you're going to have to slow down. And so he worked in a range of jobs, always making sure that we were well provided for. But to actually make the decision to buy a house right by the School for the Blind was a really big deal and um, something I'm very grateful to them for because it meant that I could walk to school like any other kid and go home at night, which was really important, and enjoy family life. But the school that I went to, it was the closest school anyway, but it happened to be the School for the Blind. And although there there are often incidents at school for the schools for the blind um, that that people um, are, are quite badly scarred by in some cases, and I'm no exception. I did get a good education there. So, what are the? Where do you fall on that? Where do you fall on that debate? Because, and it's a really controversial thing. I think even today is, you know, do you send your kids to the school for the blind or do you mainstream them? Uh, I think that the trouble with mainstreaming blind children is that it's never very well resourced, at least not in my experience. I'm sure there are some parts of the world or states in the United States where it's well done, in which case that's fantastic. But it's different. Mainstreaming is different for a blind child than it is for somebody, say, in a wheelchair, where it's very important that the built environment is made accessible. So that might involve physical modifications to the building, and it might involve perhaps having a teacher aid on hand to help with uh, certain other things like toileting or whatever. But you see, in the case of mainstreaming a blind child, we're dealing with a completely different form of literacy that most mainstream teachers are not familiar with and are not qualified to teach. So we're talking a completely different thing. And often what I found in the mainstream environment is that Braille is only offered to the blindest or smartest of students because of the pressures that a lot of these teachers are under who have to spend a lot of time traveling from school to school to teach basic literacy to children. And, you know, if this was a sighted child, if you had a sighted child who was in front of a teacher who was a, who was functionally illiterate for much of the time, it would be a scandal. But somehow it's considered okay because the child is blind. So on the other side of it, though, if you have to send your child away to a school where they have to live in some residential facility and you don't get to see your child every night, then sure, that can really mess with family dynamics and can be very unpleasant at a different level. So I I do think that mainstreaming of blind children has to be resourced properly and it seldom is resourced properly. And I do salute all of those teachers who dedicate their lives to trying to help blind people learn. And in many cases, it's a calling. It's not just a job for those teachers. I know that so many of them go well beyond the typical hours that a teacher might teach to try and help their blind students. I always pictured the boarding school like Harry Potter. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And apparently I've talked to people and it 
wasn't necessarily like Harry Potter. And at such a young age, having to leave your family like that was pretty traumatic. Yes, well, of course, Harry Potter went to an English boarding school. And in some ways, I think some of the boarding schools in New Zealand are based on that English model because so much of what we have in New Zealand has been traditionally based on the English model. So it, it does make me smile when I read Harry Potter and think about some of the similarities. And in fact, you know, I, we, we did have quite a kindly principal in the early stages of when I went to the School for the Blind. And so I do see a few Dumbledore similarities there. Mm. Did, um, do you have any favorite memories? Um. I have a lot of very fond memories of music at the School for the Blind. We had a great musical education, and I remember being in the choir and um, taking practical exams with the Royal Schools of Music in, in Britain, and I went through and did um, you know grades of theory and practical and loved the musical side of things very much. We really had a lot of fun. So music is the thing I really take away from that period. And also, actually, I think because the class sizes were smaller, we would have maybe seven or eight kids in a class. We did get quite uh, attentive teaching. Um, I unfortunately got stuck with a teacher for three years who was um, abusive in a number of ways, which I think kind of deprived me of some aspects of my childhood. So uh, I've sort of come to terms with that. And actually on my blog a couple of years ago, I wrote a post about forgiving people who have hurt you and, and how how useful it is to go through that kind of process. So it wasn't always pleasant. And again, I was just so thankful that my mother in particular would storm into the deputy principal's office and say, you know, that this this can't go on, this isn't acceptable and had she not believed me, because it was my word against the teachers, unfortunately, and had my my parents not believed me all along and never doubted, you know, never accused me of making it up, then I really don't know what would have happened. Um, their belief in me was really important. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you had incredible, incredible parents. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I have. They're, they're, they're still both with us, and, and I'm I'm very grateful to them. Yeah, I I was listening to you a rebroadcast of one of your radio shows at like three in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I hope I got you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. Um, and actually, I was I was listening to you, and then when you played a song, I switched over to audiobooks um, because I liked listening <laughs> to you. But you mentioned that the parental units were listening. So yes, yes, they they still listen. It's really amazing because. They haven't had a lot to do with computers or anything like that. Um, but then when I started traveling extensively, particularly when I joined what's now known as Humanware back in 2003, and I was doing a lot of travel, um, a lot of it. And so my mother decided that she would join this organization called SeniorNet and learn how to use a computer so that she could email me and keep up to date. And then eventually quite a few years later, I said to her, look, yeah, because she'd call me when the PC wouldn't boot or when it was doing some crazy thing or some Windows update had done something. And it was a hassle. It really stressed her out. And I said, you'd be far better off with an iPad. And she said, no, I don't want to change now. I'm used to what I have. And finally, I got, um, I convinced her to take a look at the iPad. And she loves the iPad. And uh, she listens to Mushroom FM on it. And um, 
listens to my show every week and a lot of the other shows as well. And it's just amazing. You know, she's she's in her 80s and she's taken to this thing. Yeah, that's way cool. Um, I was. What happened to your? What's your brother done? My brother is. Yeah, my brother. He is actually still living at home. So we we are quite different. Um, he is very sharp, very intelligent. Uh, keeps up to date with current affairs and that sort of stuff. Um, but he has, I suppose, had a number of, of challenges and just has, has sort of chosen to, to live at home. So we, we're, we're different personalities in a lot of ways. Huh. Wow. Yeah, I just I was curious because you talked about him in your presentation and, you know, yeah. reading Burrell and everything. I was curious what, what he's up to. Well, he, yeah, he played a great role in my childhood because he was always reading to me. He's a good Braille reader and so he was always reading stories or making up stories and um, – uh, he also enjoys shortwave listening and radio and things like that. And so um, he he really did play a big part in stimulating my interest in a whole lot of things that I still hold dear. Yeah, that's really cool. You wanted to do radio, and you ended up doing that successfully for a number of years, right? Yeah, radio was always in my blood. I just... I think I think a lot of blind people love their radio, you know, because it's a medium we can consume in its totality. And um, I listened to a lot of radio. And then when I was about four years old, I started calling into this talk show. <laughs> and uh, one day, and, and I think people liked it, you know, because it's sort of cute having this four-year-old. And I was a precocious four-year-old. And so I would call in and talk about different things. One day, my parents got a telegram and uh, of course, we don't have telegrams anymore. Um, <laughs> I went with the telegram was, you know, how they used to write out the punctuation, like stop. They used to put at the end of the telegrams. I'm not sure if you're familiar with how telegrams work, but um, I, w I wondered if the telegram was going to say, we, we want your son to stop, stop. But anyway, they they said, could could one of my parents call in uh, to the manager at the radio station? And so my parents had this big discussion about who would call because they thought that they were going to get a telling off. And I think it was my dad who finally drew the short straw and he called the manager of the radio station. And the manager of the radio station said, when Jonathan's on, we get a lot of really good feedback. People think it's fun. And we were wondering if you would allow him to come into the studio um, at Christmas time and come on the radio and do this show where kids can call in and talk about what you know what toy they want for Christmas and what they'll be eating for Christmas dinner and you know just sort of have a general kind of chit chat thing. Um, and so my parents sort of thought, phew, you know, <laughs> they're they're not they're not telling us off after all. And so they agreed that that would be fine. And I went in and did this, and I actually did it for about ten years until I became a um, grumpy teenager and. It, it wasn't probably much fun for the radio station to have me there anymore because you know because you, you get cynical at that age. Right. But um, for over that time, I actually did progress to the point that a few years in, I was operating the panel myself. You know, taking the calls and pressing the buttons and stuff, which was a hoot. And um, unfortunately, there are some incriminating recordings out there of me. And sometimes I listen to them, my sort of six or seven year old self, and think, "Oi!" But um. <laughs> you, should, you should post those on your podcast. We really shouldn't. Yeah, you should. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, I have I have played them on the Mosin Explosion once or twice, a, a couple of little bits. But 
Yeah, it, it was a, it was a mixed blessing because, um, I mean, I loved it and it was great to get to know some radio people. And the night before I would go in and do these things, I was just so excited. I could barely sleep. It's just, I loved it so much, but it also caused quite a bit of resentment among some of my peers and also the teachers who sort of thought, well, why is this kid being singled out for all this attention, you know, and, and, um, and they, um, treated me accordingly, but it, it was good. I, I always wanted to do radio. And as I started to think more seriously in my teens about a career, I realized that you have to make opportunity come to you. I mean, um, sometimes opportunity will knock if you're lucky, if you get discovered or whatever, but you have to put a big neon sign on the door to help opportunity find you. And so when I was a teenager, I decided the way to do that would be to take advantage of a provision in New Zealand's broadcasting laws then that allowed you to apply to the authorities for a temporary radio license. And it was a real procedure. You had to write this very lengthy document talking about everybody who would be on the air and what possible experience they had to to be on the air. And of course, we were just a bunch of blind kids. So it was, I guess it was my first attempt at real spin. Um, but I wrote this on my, I, it must have been my Apple, Apple IIe, I think. Uh, using Braille Edit, I wrote this massive application. And um, we sent it in and we got, we got this, we got this license to broadcast for two weeks during the school holidays. We did it twice actually, but the first time then we had to actually find out how we would raise the money and um, to, to hire all the equipment because it was AM. And so we had to have a really big mast stretching throughout a field and all this kind of stuff. So we thought, well, how do other radio stations do it? They do it through ads. Okay, we'll go out and we'll sell ads. And so we went out there and I said to all of the different um, people that we went to, shopping malls and you know, electrical appliance places and you name it, we went there and we said, look, we don't want you to we don't want you to give us money because we're blind. We want you to give us money because it's a commercially sound decision for you to make because there will be a lot of publicity about the station, which means we'll get lots of listeners, which means that you'll get lots of business if you advertise with us. And I think people appreciated that, that we weren't asking for charity. We were coming up with a viable business option for them. And we raised all the money to hire a firm, a proper radio firm to um, install all our equipment and, um, Another radio station donated a bit for the duration, and we got it up and running, and it was a really professional thing. Wow, that must have been such a blast. Yeah, it was a blast. And and then once we'd done that, I called every single radio person I could think of in management, you know, current hot radio personalities, and I said, hey, we're doing this. We're a bunch of um, kids at the School for the Blind doing this because um, you know, we're looking at radio as a career, and we want you to come out. And meet us. And some came out and did shows, you know, special shows on there. Uh, and it was a kind of cool thing because people from normally rival radio stations were, were all doing shows under this one umbrella because it kind of brought people together. But it also meant that I got to shake a lot of hands and meet a lot of influential people so that by the time I was ready to um, try for a career in radio myself, I knew everybody and um, I could make calls and wander into people's offices because I'd done the work and everybody knew who I was already. Yeah. I, but I mean, I remember from your 
your presentation, you still got you still got discriminated against. Yeah, you gotta you gotta be prepared for that. <laughs> I before all of that, before I was really ready, um, I think I may have been a first year university student, possibly something like that. And somebody said, "Hey, there's this course that's being put together by this group of broadcasters, and all you have to do to uh, apply is send in a tape." And so I put this tape together and sent it off. And they called me back and they said. That is a really good tape. We'd love you to do this course. And I can't remember how much they said it was. It was maybe a couple of thousand dollars or something. I mean, it was not cheap. And I said, I just don't have that kind of money right now. So I'm flattered, but thank you. I'll have to pass. And they called me back again. And they said, look, we really, really want you to do this course because we think you're going places. So for you, since it's you, we'll give you, um, <laughs> we'll give you half price. And I said, okay, I can probably manage that. I said, look, I'll come in, I'll put a few Braille labels on some stuff, uh, get prepared. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I'm totally blind and that's not going to be a problem. You know, I've worked in a lot of radio environments. I just need to put some Braille labels on the media so I know what's what and then we'll be good to go. And he said, I oh, forget it. There's no point in, in doing the course since a blind person could never have a career in radio. Yeah. And then, and then you became his boss. A few years Eventually, later. yeah. Well, <laughs> Program director of a radio station he was on. What was that? Did you ever, did he realize that, that he, you were? He must have realized. It's funny. You know, I don't think we ever openly talked about that. And um, sometimes I think that discretion is the best option. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, I, it must have been, it must have been painful, though, at the time that it happened when, you know, you've got this great opportunity and all of a sudden... It's just take, taken away from you uh, specifically because you can't see. Mm, and it was before human rights legislation outlawed discrimination on the grounds of disability in this country. So there wasn't really anything that I could do. Uh, I suppose it didn't overly – it annoyed me, but I don't think – I don't think it made me think, man, maybe they're right. Maybe maybe I, I can't work in radio because, of course, by this stage I knew that, that I could. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's a, it was a lesson in some ways. You're managing a station, but then you, you changed careers a few times. Yeah. How, how come? <laughs> well, you see, radio in New Zealand became very deregulated. We had a bit of an economic revolution in New Zealand. So before – 1984, ironically enough, that was the year when things started to change. Um, we were one of the most regulated Western economies in the world. And if you wanted to run a radio station, actually only the government could run radio stations until 1936, uh, 66 rather. And then there was a, a group of broadcasters who went out on a ship to try and break the government monopoly from international waters. So it was all very exciting. Um, but then everything went in completely the other direction. So by the early 1990s, you could set up a radio station by buying a frequency if you had the money to do it. And frequencies were being bought and sold. And so it was crazy. Uh, radio stations at that stage were moving up and down the dial. The, the one radio station would be on one frequency one week and another frequency another week. And radio stations were changing owners because People thought, oh, a radio station, man, that's a license to print money. And then they got a radio station and found that it actually wasn't. Mm. So the bottom line is it was a really unstable environment to be in. And my then wife and I were thinking about having a family. 
and um, I'd already been down and up the dial a little bit. And so I thought, well, I, I had also been involved in blindness advocacy as a volunteer since the mid-1980s, I had become involved in the Blindness Consumer Organization in New Zealand, and advancing the lot of blind people has always been really important to me. And so a position came up where I could assist blind people um, at the Blind Foundation, the provider here. And given all of the factors that it was a very unstable environment and that, yeah, this interested me too, I decided to go for that job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean, I think a lot of times you get passionate about helping people who are in your same boat, so to speak. And it made me a better person because I met a lot of people who whose blindness was a very different reality from mine and it helped it broadened my horizons a lot, you know, because for me blindness hasn't really stopped me from doing anything that I've wanted to do badly enough uh, maybe driving of course but most of my career choices I haven't um, I haven't been Im- impacted by blindness um, but then I got to meet people who became blind later in life maybe as a result of an accident or maybe because of age-related conditions and I met a woman it still sticks with me now who was in her mid-90s and she went to sleep fairly much fully sighted and she woke up totally blind and she was a nun. And for the first time in her life, it questioned, she, she questioned all that she believed because she just couldn't understand what possible purpose God was serving in blinding her at such a late stage in her life. And it really made me think about how blindness is a major often initially at least, tragic event. And so it was my privilege to try and tell people that, yeah, I mean, there's no there's no denying that this is a huge loss and it's a massive change. And for many people, there will be a process of grieving and coming to terms with it, but it can be okay. Yeah, yeah. I That's what I did before I had my family was working at our local center for the blind. And I loved, I loved watching people change. I loved watching people, you know, they'd go down the... the hall with the cane and they were walking slower than my childhood tortoise and then by the end they were doing a 35 mile jaunt around the city and bringing back a bunch of business cards and I loved watching them realize that blindness is a pain in the butt but it it isn't the end of the world and you can yeah that's wonderful that you did that and I think if if we can go to sleep at night and answer the question what difference have I made today and you can point to something you did or someone you helped that just made the world even infinitesimally a better place, then I think we've fulfilled a useful purpose. And that can be in any number of endeavors. But to me, making a difference of some kind really matters to me. Yeah. And um, you're, you're in assistive technology now. So how did that how did that happen? You did ACB radio. I loved it when you were on ACB radio. <laughs> you used to fun. call in. Yeah, yeah, I did. And um, I, that was just, that was really cool. I, I, one of these days I'll have to have you, I'll have to read your book on doing ACB radio and have you come back and talk about it. But And then from there you went to Humanware? 
Yeah, well, one led to the other, really. Uh, I mean, I was glad to do ACB Radio because it got me back into what I love the most, which is radio. And it was a new form of radio. I loved the pioneering element of of working out what was possible with internet broadcasting. And there were a lot of technological challenges and new things to try. But then on ACB Radio, I realized how much of a hunger there was for blindness-related technology content and I used to include that on the show that I started even before ACB Radio called Blindline, which was the first international talk show exclusively for blind people. Yeah, and, I love that show. Well, <laughs> we used to, I mean, when I first started it, even before ACB Radio, we would have people actually making international phone calls to New Zealand because the idea of having this show was so cool they didn't mind spending some money. And in the late 1990s, international phone calls were not that cheap. So yeah. that was cool. Well, we love that. And then um, what I found was that technology was starting to unduly dominate BlindLine. And I didn't mind doing some technology stuff, but there were other things to talk about besides technology. And so I thought, okay, we're going to split this up. We're going to do BlindLine, which talks about all the other aspects of blindness. And then we're going to do a two-hour technology show every week called Main Menu. And when I announced this, a number of people said, oh, no, you're going to break everything. Yeah, leave it alone. Yeah. Um, but of course, Main Menu is still going. And Main Menu was exciting because it predated podcasts. So it was much harder then to produce technology content and get it out there for audiences to consume than it is now because Everybody knows about podcasting and they can search for keywords like blindness technology and find things. So we did that. And then um, people tell, tell me in the industry that they used to sort of wait quaking for the main menu reviews of whatever <laughs> latest technology they had produced. And one day I got a call from um, Pulse Data International, as it was known then, which is the New Zealand company that, that sort of humanware was a subsidiary of in the States. But I'd known Russell Smith from Pulse Data since I was a kid because it's a New Zealand company and they used to have me test some of their stuff like the old Keynote products and stuff. And they said, we are we are quite keen for you to come on board and manage the blindness products. And I had never really thought about doing anything like that. Mm. But what really – well, two things sort of coalesced, three things really. One – the exchange rate was going horrible between the United States and New Zealand and ACB radio did not pay well. Um, and it, that was okay in the early days because of the exchange rate between the U S dollar and the New Zealand dollar, but it was getting much harder to um, pay the mortgage basically. Yeah, sure. The second thing was that um, uh, I was not happy with the direction that the Chris Gray uh, administration was taking the organization and it was getting harder and harder to stay silent about that um, while other people around me that I admired and respected were leaving. And the third thing was I really liked the idea of being involved in making something, of actually coming up with a concept of, of being in such an, a, a privileged position that I could – um, come up with a, an idea and see that idea turned into reality by really talented, capable people and then getting it out there and, and seeing blind people use it. So it was it, it was the idea of producing something and making a difference in that way that really made me think, okay, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sell up and we'll move to Christchurch and we'll try this. Yeah, and, and – um... Did you like it? I was pretty shocked, actually. Um, 
<laughs> the, the first the first day, and I met with some of the people there, and I went home and I said, I I think I've made a terrible terrible mistake. I was uh, I was overwhelmed because I mean, in in two thousand and three when I took it on, the Braille Note really was starting to fall behind, and they had a very strong market share. But um, there there were a number of um, things that I had this great big list. Okay, we're going to do this. You know, we're going to add this functionality and so on. And then I learned about some of the technical limitations of the platform that mm-hmm. wouldn't make a lot of those things possible overnight. And so I realized this is a much longer game than I had appreciated. And so not long after that, uh, we sat down and I had to convince the uh, senior management of the board, essentially, of, of uh, Pulse Data that we needed to start work on the next generation of Brownote, and it was going to cost seven figures, and that mm-hmm. became the Brownote in power. And I was, pr- I was proud of the Brownote in power because um, it, you know, it, did, it did help the Brownote to catch up and stay relevant, but also we launched that without a single leak. You don't often get in assistive technology a media release that says, hey, we've got this cool new technology and it does this and this. And then in the next paragraph, it says, and it's available today. So often you get technology that's that's signaled six months or a year even before it's available. But yeah. we didn't mention the Brown Note Empower until the day it was on the shelf and you could order it. And I'm really proud of that. Um, and so... No one knew it was coming until about two days before the 2005 conventions, and we really rocked the industry. So it's something I'm I'm very proud of, and I'm proud of the product. I think we did pretty well with what we had. Yeah, I I I, I, I had one of those. I loved it. My favorite thing about the Braille Note um, was that initial display they came out with. Oh, that was the most glorious Braille display that they've ever had. I was so sad when, I guess they couldn't get the parts for it. Yeah, they changed supplier from Tiemann, who were doing the Braille sales then, to KGS. And um, I forget now all the details about why we did that, but there was a very good reason. Um, May have been cost, I can't remember now. But yeah, I I know what you mean. The Tiemann sales were kind of at... uh, it's a different kind of surface, and I think the fingers ran over the cells a little better. Um, yeah, I, I remember yeah. the review you did on the Braille Note, and you said something like, it's hard for me not to become mushy over this over this Braille display. And I was like, I know, I love that Braille display. And then the rubber cursor. Flower language on my part. But yeah, no, it was, it was good. It, um, and and I'm, as I say, I'm sure there was a jolly good reason. I wish I could remember what it was now. But yeah. Um, but but yeah, we added some pretty cool functionality to, to the Empower and, and beefed up the processing and stuff like that. But, um, uh, you know, a lot, a lot. It was a very, it was a very difficult time, uh, obviously not long after. So we launched the Brownhead Empower at the end of June. I think it was the 28th of June we got that release out. And then uh, in early August, Russell Smith, the CEO and founder of Pulse Data, died in a light plane crash. Mm. And um, that was, uh, was a very bad time. Um, it was a very bad time. And uh, so it wasn't really quite the same after that. And you you went on to Freedom Scientific, which is where you're at now, right? Yeah, I did. Um, I... Uh, actually, we're coming up to the 10th anniversary of the FSCast podcast. I'm producing the 10th anniversary now. So I 
joined Freedom Scientific in September of 2006. And that was insane, man. I mean, um, hopefully you were out of the blindness sort of um, internet loop, but there were like. I was actually. Yeah, ACB. <laughs> <laughs> so ACB Radio did a whole show on this. On um, they they published an article in Access World about it, which I think they sort of rather wittily called the Mosin excursion, um, and uh, it was all over the lists. And luckily, there wasn't Twitter, or well, there was Twitter barely, um, or Facebook then. But it was like you know, one blind guy. Uh, goes from one technology company to another technology company and for some reason, you know, it's, it's like an act of heresy or something like that. So it was a very weird time. But I was um, I was excited. You know, I, I've always had a lot of um, admiration for JAWS. And what really, you know, there, there are a lot of very talented blind people who work there that, uh, that keep the products um, as viable as they are and, and there would not be um, a number of blind people doing the job that they do if – uh, it weren't for Jaws. I'm very proud of that. And I remember going there sort of when we were negotiating to Florida and sitting in Eric Damry's office and Eric is sighted, but he sits there with his screen off and he uses Jaws mm. you know, on a daily basis to get his job done because um, it, it helps him understand the product. And wow. uh, it's been it's been a great experience. Yeah, that that's funny. I didn't know you got so much pushback from switching oh, from one man. company to another. That's hilarious. Never and I'm still not really sure why. I think people sort of felt that somehow um, it was a traitorous act or a treacherous act to go from humanware to freedom scientific. And I'm still sort of scratching my head thinking, well, what, why? Uh, people move from technology company to technology company all the time. You see executives who go from, say, Microsoft to Google or, you know, Google to Apple or whatever. Um, and there's just a little sometimes depending on the profile of the executive. And I do ex ex accept that I did have a high profile at Humanware. So, you know, sometimes you see a paragraph or two and it says so-and-so has uh, just been appointed as whatever at this new company. And that's the story. But this was just like, ongoing outrage about it you know <laughs> it's, just quite, it's really odd to be the center of something like that well you were you were on the human were hold lit uh the hold music and once you um once you left you weren't there so maybe that was it that every <laughs> when they were waiting for technical support everybody didn't get to listen to you advertise <laughs> i remember really was, yeah i didn't I, I don't remember being on the hold music, but it was a long time ago now. So that was in the U.S. on the hold music in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. If you were when you were waiting on hold for technical support, you got to hear Jonathan Mosen's voice, and then once you and once you left, wow, <laughs> yeah. So maybe that was it. <laughs> um, maybe. I guess the other thing I was going to ask you um, about just doing careers in general as a as a person with a disability is. Um, do you have any advice for people that are struggling to either figure out what they want to do or struggling to find a job? Because one of the things that I think um, you have to have, anybody has to have, but especially if you are disabled, is you have to have someone that will believe in you and give you a chance. I agree with that. But I also think that someone, first and foremost, has to be yourself. And it's a hard one because you do have to be willing to open your heart up a little bit to constructive criticism. And sometimes it can be very hard to know um, 
what's constructive criticism and what's just misinformation. And if somebody tells you a blind person could never do this job, then chances are they're somebody that you don't want to listen to. But if you can find somebody who's in the industry that you want to work in, um, say radio, for example, and you send them a tape, uh, and that wouldn't be a tape these days, and they come back to you and they say, well, yeah, this is good, but um, there's something here in your delivery that you might want to consider, or perhaps you're not fluent enough or too hesitant, then you, sh you have to learn, I think, which criticism to take on board. I also think that you have to always have the end goal in mind, even when it may take you some time to achieve the end goal. So, for example, when I was a kid, I'd listen to uh, radio broadcasters reading ads on the air or reading news on the air. And I thought to myself, well, how am I going to do that? And I realized that Braille was my ticket to working successfully on the radio. So I would practice reading out loud as wide a range of material as possible, sort of shut myself in my room and I would just read and I would practice at being fluent. And I'd even record myself and I'd play myself back and say, oh gosh, you know, this is not fluent enough. Um, what can I do about that? And I kind of developed my own braille reading style that allows me to to read it at, at, at fast enough speed that I can narrate documentaries or read commercials or uh, these days more often than not, you know, read a script that I might have prepared for an audio tutorial I've worked on or something like that. So you have to think, I think, strategically and realize that um, – yeah, no one owes you anything. And so you, you, unfortunately, you do have to prove yourself. I wanted to talk about religion <laughs> um, because you are yeah. an atheist. And I, in, you know, like I said at the beginning, in the U.S., you'd be, a, you'd be a minority. Before I start on this, I should say I really had to think carefully about, doing, about talking about this um, only because I know that in America, it's a really hot button kind of issue to the extent that I published an article um, on Facebook. I just, just shared a link. It wasn't my article. I shared a link on Facebook a few months ago that talked about how more and more people were discarding religion in favor of sort of thinking for themselves um, about a moral code to live by that was relevant in the 21st century. And somebody actually unfriended me, but before doing so accused me of hate speech. So it's an incredible um, uh, cauldron over there. Now, here in New Zealand, we've had atheist prime ministers for the last 18 years and um, they 19 years, and they don't care. I mean, um, we don't care. So, so um, they'll have a debate, you know, before the election and somebody will say, well, I'm an atheist and, and maybe the other candidate will say, well, I'm an atheist too. So, yeah, you won. Or uh, I, I'm a Catholic or whatever. Nobody, no one cares here. Hmm. Um, it's just not even important. Um, so, but then I thought, well, I will talk about this because um, I, I maybe it will help someone. It's certainly not going to convince anybody who is very staunch in their religious beliefs, and it's really not my place to do that anyway. But if there are people who genuinely feel a little bit uncomfortable with just doing what they've always done because they've always done it and something deep down in their heart says, well, this doesn't make sense to me, then maybe my story will help them. And that's the only reason why I'm doing it. I'm not try I'm not doing it to try and be confrontational to anyone, but um, you know, we, we, we still do have, <clears throat> even in the United States, we still there, there still is freedom of expression and it, actually the Constitution protects freedom of religious beliefs, although 
you wouldn't think so uh, often. My um, parents weren't overly what I would call religious. If I asked them what religion they were, they would say Anglican because I guess everybody is a, typically is born into a religion. But they weren't. They didn't go to church, and we didn't say grace before dinner. But where I got my religion from, big time, was actually the school for the blind. I mentioned the music, and that was a really important part of it. Um, and we used to do a lot of um, church services, a lot of sacred work. Um, we even had a religious instruction class at our school for the blind once a week. And uh, I used to listen to a, a Christian radio station, which I liked. So my parents weren't overly religious, but I was getting a lot of uh, indoctrination from other sources. Mm. Yeah, I, I just to say before we go on that I, my big, my biggest hope for um, doing this podcast is just simply to promote understanding, and that was why I was interested in discussing it because um, my dad is an atheist. And I remember one time we told a really religious friend that he was an atheist, and the first question he asked was, well, is he happy? And I was like, what? So I, I, that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted you to talk about it was here you'd, in the U.S. you'd be of two minorities and also you know blind and um, an atheist, and I, I just want to promote understanding. Um, mm, and I, but I think that's a really good point. There are a lot of angry atheists out there I suppose there are a lot of angry people generally out there. And um, I suppose some people need the fervent rhetoric of someone like Richard Dawkins. And maybe there was a point in my journey where I found that helpful, particularly when you're trying to recover from uh, religious indoctrination. And I think there is a recovery process where you start to learn to think for yourself and question, um, really try and and rationalize your own thought processes. But it can also turn people off because um, I, it's almost like it, it seems to me that Richard Dawkins is almost as fundamentalist in his atheism as a lot of people he criticizes are in their Christianity. And I'm not sure that's particularly helpful. So I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do claim to have read uh, most of the world's famous sacred texts, and I have really studied them. I know a lot more about the Bible than many Christians do, which frustrates me. <laughs> um, and and, uh, and so it, it is something I've given a lot of thought to. I think it is a really interesting question about, you know, what or who or, you know, what, what put us on this planet? Um, what's the purpose of being here? And how can we make best use of the time that we have, which is just a blip in the wider scheme of, of, of the cosmos, really. Yeah. So, um, you, you, you said that you, um, got, you know, started getting, feeling religious from the school for the blind. Did you join a, a group? Did you join a religion? I, I did actually. And in the, when I was a teenager, I got in touch with a, a Pentecostal church we, we used to do services, special events and stuff at the Anglican Cathedral quite a bit. <clears throat> it was a pretty cool experience, actually, singing in the cathedral and the acoustics are great. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Uh, but um, I somehow 
I don't even specifically recall. Maybe it's because, I, yeah, I think it may have been because um, the music teacher at the time was heavily involved in a Pentecostal church. And the music was better there, frankly, you know, than the Anglican church with their organ, you know. And uh, these guys at the Pentecostal church, they, they had a good time. You know, they were, they had a band and they were singing kind of music that had a bit of swing to it. And, um, oh, man, it was rocking. And so... I contacted the local Pentecostal church and my parents were pretty relaxed about that. They said, well, if that's something that you've decided you want to do, then, you know, go ahead. Mm. And um, um, they they would send a volunteer to pick me up in the car on a Sunday morning and I would go and be be a part of that. So, yeah, I was I was a regular church going when I, a goer when I was a teenager. Was it – so what made you um, lose your faith? <laughs> Um, a couple of things. Um, one was actually the radio station that I talked about, which was called Radio Enterprise. And one day I got I got castigated without warning. Castigated I did by the the volunteer who picked me up to go to church, and she said, "I've seen you a lot on the TV lately and in the newspapers and stuff about your radio station," and. Um, and she said, and um, you haven't given any glory to God for all of this. And I'm sort of thinking, huh? <laughs> she said, yeah, haven't seen you in any interview. Um, praise God for, uh, for, for for all the gifts that he's given you and this sort of stuff. And I sort of thought, well, you know, um, mm, I, I've spent hundreds of hours working on this project. Um, <laughs> and a, a lot of the work that I've done, I've actually done. Um, and it, is, it, is it really, do we worship a God so vain that he requires me to kind of praise him all the time? I would have thought that running the universe and with all the wars and famine and mess there is in the world, that God probably doesn't give two hoots whether I mention him in an interview or not. And also, um, I, I believe in individual responsibility. I believe that, um, um, you you succeed or you fail based on on the effort that you put in, and I don't really didn't really see the connection with God there. Um, the big one though, which caused a bit of a, a schism, was that um, I I um, had a friend who developed a serious illness, and um, it, it it appeared at the time to be terminal, and. Um, that was my first confrontation really with the whole question of why do bad things happen to good people? You know, and this debate goes, goes on and on, yeah. but it made me think about whether there really is a personal God as such. And I've had many encounters with this over the years, even quite recently. So we, we had quite a big earthquake here. Um, while I was away uh, in the United States, we had a 7.8 magnitude earthquake which was very scary for everybody involved. And there was some loss of life, mercifully, because it happened at midnight. Um, there wasn't a lot of loss of life, but one is too many. Yeah. And um, so there was this chat on an email list about the quake and um, people asking, are Jonathan and Bonnie okay? And I'm really grateful for that. And somebody posted a message and said, well, um, it, how thankful they were that God had spared us. 
And then, of course, what, what you get in that situation is if God has spared you, if, he, if God has made a conscious choice to spare someone, then he must have also made a conscious choice to kill someone else. If we believe that there's a personal God who's in control of absolutely everything, then God has consciously chosen to allow the death of someone to happen. And I actually find this incredibly offensive. <laughs> a few years ago, I was ta- I was um, reading someone's tweets, and it was a very scary thing because they were talking about how there was a serial killer. I'm not making this stuff up. There was a serial killer in their apartment block. Oh. And that um, – the the neighbor had been killed, but this person tweeting had not. And they were saying how grateful they were that God had chosen not to have her killed off. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm glad you're alive too. But if if you really do subscribe to the idea of a personal God, then it means that he either went to sleep on the job or he made a conscious decision to allow somebody to be murdered. You can't have it both ways. Um, it's like whenever anything good happens, praise the Lord. And whenever something bad happens, then it's uh, yeah, obviously it's Satan's fault or God's will works in mysterious ways. It all just seems a little bit primitive to me. And I understand why it's attractive you know, 2,000 years ago when we're much more suspicious uh, species and we knew a lot le- uh, a lot less, but it doesn't make sense. And I think that anything anything that is credible will survive scrutiny. I think it's an obligation that we have as a species to question and. Uh, think about things in new ways because that's how we have advanced in terms of not only science but attitudes as well. You know, it wasn't that long ago that slavery of uh, the people we now refer to as African Americans was justified biblically. And um, a lot of the people who are now saying that there is justification for discrimination against homosexuals would a couple of hundred years ago, have been saying exactly the same thing about African-Americans. And religion apparently justifies that, that, that there's um, that there's some sort of biblical justification. You can pretty much justify anything in the Bible if you um, if, if you want to. So, yeah, that it, it got me, those incidents really got me thinking about, well, why am I doing this? And I realized that probably why I was doing it was because I wanted to belong and I think this is a really big deal, particularly in the United States, where churches are kind of a place where the community gets together for fellowship once a week. And some people are very devout, but a lot of people go because it's it's somewhere to go to get together with, with their local community, particularly in rural areas, you know, less built up areas, more traditional areas. It's it's a place where people gather. Um, there are there are there are meetings and social events all around the church, and so for a lot of people, they kind of shrug their shoulders and they say, "Well, yeah, I know it's all kind of a little bit unrealistic these days, and but it keeps it keeps everybody, you know, gives everybody a moral code, and I'd rather believe in it and be wrong than not believe in it and be wrong and find that I'm going to burn in hell for eternal fire. And I I say to them, don't you think God knows that? Don't you think God can look right into your heart and see that you're just hedging your bets? Um, 
Yes, yeah, so, it's a fascinating area. Was it painful to lose your faith? Yeah, it was. It was I was very scared. I was I was really scared. I was I was scared of being sort of smited. You know, if I if I said <laughs> if I said something that was sort of sacrilegious or something of, of of having bad things happen to me. But that's the thing. Um I don't necessarily agree with the way that Richard Dawkins says all that he says. Um and and I don't I don't completely deny any spiritual dimension uh, as he appears to do. But I do I do agree with him that religion is child abuse because you're brainwashing kids who've had no choice like if you discover a philosophy later in life, then fair enough, you know, if, if it works for you, if you can take out of it what helps you to be on the straight and narrow, that's wonderful. But uh, a lot of kids literally have the fear of God put into them, and they are genuinely scared and timid, and I don't think that we've done ourselves any service as a species by by doing that. And a lot of the people that I come across, they're just a victim of their geography. So if they were born just picking a state at random <laughs> in Kentucky, then maybe that's why they've become an ardent fundamentalist Christian. Had they been born in Tehran, they'd be just as fundamentalist a Muslim. They've never really taken the time to to read all of the sacred texts, to understand them, to think, well, you know, maybe there are just some things that don't apply to us in 2016 that we've moved on in terms of morality and acceptability. And um, they, but but they don't. It's it's just an indoctrination. Talk about where do you get morals from? I I remember telling talking to a friend of mine about um, my dad, and she was you know and just mentioning that he you know, doesn't smoke and he's an atheist. And she was just shocked that he didn't smoke. And I was like, well, smoking is not good for your health. <laughs> um, so where do you get, where do you get, where do you get morality from? Because I think a lot of people um, uh, view people's views is that they get it from their religion. Well, I certainly don't get my morals from the Bible where there are passenger, passages encouraging the stoning of women for adultery. <laughs> and I, I certainly don't get, my morality from the Bible that also talks about um, stoning and, and killing of homosexuals. And I certainly don't get my morality from a Bible that talks about sacrificing a baby son to God, which is just beyond hideous. So let's not for a moment kid ourselves and say that the Bible is somehow a moral book. Uh, it, if, if it wasn't the Bible, it would probably be classified somewhere for the gratuitous violence and hate speech that is contained particularly in the Old Testament. So I get my morality, I believe, from a consensus that is built up in society where we as a people think about and determine through a democratic process um, what is acceptable to us as a society and what is not. So let me give you an example of this. Um, New Zealand has become quite liberal in recent times. We do have gay marriage here uh, and we celebrate that. But another thing that was more controversial was the legalization a few years ago of prostitution. Now, I don't understand 
um, why anyone at either end of that transaction would participate in it. Um, for me, uh, that kind of um, experience should be one of, of love. But who am I to judge? If you've got somebody who is um, willing to pay and you have someone who is willing to be paid, then does do, do I have a right to interfere with that transaction? The difficulty comes, of course, when you have any kind of exploitation. And so if you have people who are forced into it by unscrupulous people or who are forced into it because of their circumstances, then that's absolutely hideous. And we as a society need to face up to that. But if you have a well-regulated environment where people are doing this because they choose to do it, then what harm is it actually doing uh, to us as a society? So I would far, you know, I'd far rather have the authorities regulate this and make sure that kids in particular and um, vulnerable minorities um, are not being exploited than have it go under the, the rug, as it were, because it will always go on. And so if we know that it's always going to go on, let's make sure that it's done in as safe a way as possible where people understand the risks and where vulnerable people are protected. Wow. So what is that? What has that been like? How long has that been legal? Um, I think about 10 years or so now. Um, I mean, it, it's still controversial and it, it as I say, it does make me uncomfortable um, because it sure as heck isn't something I'd want either of my daughters to be doing. Um, so, uh, but but the thing is, it we have to we have to acknowledge the way that people are, and um, it is what they call the oldest profession for a reason. And so, if we just acknowledge that. Um, this is human nature and that there are genuinely willing buyers and genuinely willing sellers, then we have to make sure that it's done in a safe way. So um, morality, I think um, we, we, we hopefully become more enlightened as a people. I mean, there is, there are lots of cases I think in, in the Bible where blindness is viewed as a very negative thing. Just the other day, I was talking on the Mosin Explosion, for example, about the expression, the blind leading the blind. And because I know my Bible, I know that comes from the book of Matthew. I may be wrong, but I think it's chapter 11. And um, <laughs> and and uh, Jesus says that they're blind leaders of the blind. And when the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Oh, and we had, we had a discussion about this, um, about whether that was offensive or not, the expression, the blind leading the blind. And in my opinion, it absolutely is offensive because it's substituting the word blind for incompetent yeah. or stupid. You could, you could easily substitute that Bible verse with they are the incompetent leading the incompetent, and it means the same thing. So the Bible uses the term blind in that way to belittle people without sight and portray them as un incompetent. And why that matters is because you have employers, you have people who make decisions, who read their Bible, and they're getting these subtle signals that blindness equals incompetence. So it matters to me. Um, blind people are often in the Bible people who, you know, want to be, who have to be healed. And I have struck this with Christians in many churches where 
they go along and people don't accept them for who they are, they question their faith and they say, if you prayed harder and were right with God, you would be healed. God would heal you. Um, you know, come on. This is 2016 and we know the genetic and other conditions that cause blindness. Um, right. and, and if there is to be healing that's going on, it will probably be done through gene therapy. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is, has death been hard? I, I remember talking to my, my brother. Um, he's, he's also an atheist and I was asking him about it and he said something that I found kind of poignant. He said, you know, I miss our grandfather a lot and I, I'd love for him to be somewhere and to see him again. I just don't see any evidence for it. Yeah. It's the toughest of all things, I think. And I think it's the, it's the thing that keeps people in religion the most is that if you really love someone and that someone has died, it's incredibly comforting to think that there's a heaven somewhere where you will see that person again and it helps with the grieving process. And I think for people who genuinely believe that there's no evidence at the moment that there is anything after death, you kind of feel like you're telling a five-year-old something about Santa Claus they don't want to hear. You know, it's it's really, really tough. And look, I, I'm not here to say that I have the answers. I'm here to say that I'm, I'm curious and I keep exploring um and i don't see any strong evidence at this point that there is anything after death or that we reincarnate or anything like that but i keep looking for now i have to believe that there isn't anything because i've got no evidence that there is and in a way that influences my behavior i don't get it right all the time by any means at all but i try to live each day as if it were my last here. And I live my life on the expectation that this is the only thing I have. I'm not working towards some kind of better afterlife. Um, my, I mean, immortality, if it's to be achieved, in my view, is done through what you leave behind. So if I've done any advocacy projects that make life a little better for blind people in New Zealand, for example, or when I look at the role that I played in the copyright legislation in New Zealand that started the ball rolling for the Marrakesh Treaty. Oh, it was <laughs> only know. passed that here in the U.S. Sorry for, yeah, the, sorry for the digression, but oh, my God. <laughs> all, of, all of those things, you know, um, if, if I've – if I produced a tutorial that helps someone use their computer more, those are really practical things that I hope have just, you know, not, not through sort of major initiatives, but just, just gently making the world fractionally better. And if we each did that, you know, there's the old saying about if we all just lit one candle, what a brighter world it would be. If we could all just do that and focus on making the life we have now, the one we're certain of as best as it can be and being kind to people and, um, uh, live and let live, then we'd probably have a much happier planet. But I, I see people wasting their lives away, putting up with injustice or oppression or mediocrity because they believe they'll be rewarded for that in some afterlife that I see no evidence exists. It's it's sad because it's wasting the one thing we're sure of. How do you how do you deal with how do you personally deal with the death of somebody you care about it. You've had, you've had guide dogs, right? I mean, you've had guide dogs before, haven't you? 
Yep. Yeah, I, I remember when you I listened to your interview with the president of the Seeing Eye, and just the way you described that bond that takes place. You you've been there, you get it. So how do you deal with it when? How do you deal with it when your guide dog dies, or how are you going to deal with it when your parents, who have been such a beautiful influence on your life, die? How do you how do you deal with that? I know that nothing is permanent. It was George Harrison who said all things must pass. Presumably he got it from somewhere. Mm-hmm. But but it's true. Everything in our lives is fleeting. And in the context of the universe, it's just a tiny speck on the continuum of time. So I know that people in my life that I care about very, very much will not be here forever. And so I try to make the most of them while they're here. When they're, when they're eventually not, I don't deny it is a really sad process. And But, but, but you know, Christians grieve too. Even, even though Christians believe that they're in heaven now, and maybe that does provide some comfort, you still grieve for what what you had with them, that the relationship that you enjoyed has been lost with that person. So it's not like a cure-all. Um, and I eventually, when I'm over, uh, when, when, I, when I, I mean, sometimes you never get completely over a grieving process, but when you start to move on, when you're ready to try and pick up the pieces a bit, I'm grateful. I express a lot of gratitude in my life for the experience that having that person or that guide dog in my life has brought to me. And I hope that they've enriched my life as a result of being part of it. And I'm grateful for that. Um, so it's, it's not easy, you know, death, death is never easy, but I'm not sure that religion completely erases that either. Yeah. I just, I just, um, I was thinking about, you know, my first guide dog and, you know, it was painful when she passed away. But the memories of her now are – I love them. They make me happy to think about her. Yeah, you do get to that point. It's a really horrible, yeah, difficult process to get through. But then, of course, there is debates. I mean, learned scholars who have the time to think about these things debate whether animals go to heaven either. Have you seen that? You know, that, that, you, that some people don't believe that animals do go to heaven. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, why I've seen that. That's some, that? Some animals I mean, don't, if don't... you believe in a heaven, why wouldn't you believe? I, I, yeah, yeah, wonderful. No, well, well, I have certainly read that some people believe that animals don't go to heaven, and that's the thing. There's so much ambiguity, and it's not really surprising that there's so much ambiguity because this was a bunch of quite disparate books in some cases written by individuals a very long time ago. And often there's a lot of debate about the translation. And, you know, if this were God's definitive word, I would, you know, it, it would seem to me that God might want to come and smite someone for mistranslating his 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 words, you know, because this is pretty important. If, you, if you've got ambiguity over how God wants you to live, then he's not making it very easy. Um, you know, at least at least give us a very clear user guide here for for what we're supposed to do. And then if we don't do it, well, you know, we haven't followed the manual and then, you know, that's our problem. But there's a lot of ambiguity about what the manual actually says. So um, I, I also, I guess, started to struggle with the idea that 
God created Satan. And we don't often focus on this, but you've got a God who is omnipotent, according to the Bible, who's all-knowing, and created um, Lucifer, who eventually left the left God's ways. And people say to me, Christians say to me, well, that's because God creates us with free will. And what we do once we're created is our business. But the thing is, if God is all-knowing, then he knows all, right? And that means that God will know what the future holds. And God must have known then that in creating Lucifer, he was creating evil. So he, he he's created it. it. It's a logical fallacy when you really dig down deep in it enough. And um, th- there are much more, in my view, constructive ways to be at peace with the universe and with other people. Um, I, I don't have any difficulty with people um, practicing their religion if it helps them, and I would indeed defend their right to do it. I would I would protest in the streets if it were ever curtailed. What I do have a difficulty with is those religious beliefs somehow um, becoming legislated so that those of us who don't believe them are forced to abide by them. I do object to religious beliefs and being being forced on me in inappropriate gatherings. One of the things that I resented very, very much was that I used to have to be at every minute of an ACB general session because I was streaming it when I ran ACB radio. And they would start with an invocation, which was usually, but not always, a Christian invocation. Um, and I had nowhere to go. And my view is, look, if you want to worship the deity of your choice, then do that in your hotel room before you go down. If you feel that you're getting guidance from that deity, then then great. You know, that's fine. I'm not not knocking it if it works for you. But don't force it on me in a gathering that has nothing to do with religion at all. It's it's inappropriate and we really should stand up against that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember um I remember the uh being at an ACB convention and it was just after um the Supreme Court had held and upheld under God and the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh yes, I remember that too. Yeah. <laughs> remember that? Yeah, yeah. And when the everybody said the pledge, they said under God very, very loudly. Yeah, very loud. I remember that vividly as well. And look, people don't know their history very well. In many cases, the under God thing was introduced in the 1950s to the right. Pledge of Allegiance. It wasn't there before. It was a, a reaction to the Cold War and the whole thing that was going on then. Um, the the whole concept of separation between church and state that was fundamental to the Constitution in the United States has been blurred over the years. I mean, you've got in God we trust on the currency now. It's just it's just really inappropriate and um it, it somehow people think that if they believe in these very disparate disconnected illogical ideals that it makes them superior to people who don't and i think this is the issue um while i'm relaxed about people believing whatever works for them others don't accord me the same courtesy and in fact the, the very nature of Christianity, you look at um, John fourteen six. I believe that's the one, which is uh, the I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man come, cometh to the Father but by me. 
So basically what that's saying is if, if you don't believe in this particular version of religion, one of many, many sort of myths and legends about gods and, 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 and how we got here that have existed over the millennia, if you don't believe in this particular one, then you are going to burn in eternal fire. You are going to, you are going to be in an absolutely excruciating agony for eternity. Let's not sugarcoat it. I mean, that's what hell is. <laughs> and um, so, so it's a pretty, people talk to me about atheism being hate speech. I can't think of much more hateful speech than saying that because you don't believe what I do, you are going to burn in hell forever. It's pretty, pretty real, man. Right. Right. Um, well, I did, um, is there anything else you wanted to say about it before we move on? Um, yes. <laughs> and that is that I, I, I you're, just, you're, just I, that I have found a very passionate subject with you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did want to say that, um, I, I keep exploring and if there were some sort, I'm, I mean, I'm really opening myself up here, but if, if there was some sort of evidence that came along that made me think that I am wrong and that the Christian version, you know, and I've studied, I've studied Islam as well. And I bet you there are many Christians who have not, uh, who've not even picked up a Quran because you know, they judge people who who they've never whose religion they've never investigated or never met. There are some terrible fundamentalists out there in Islam. Of course, there are, but there are also some pretty scary fundamentalists in uh, Christianity as well over the years. Um, and in fact, religion has been used over the years to oppress questioning and free thought and scientific investigation. I mean, let's not forget Galileo and, and what he went through. And if you're a Christian and you don't know about Galileo, then you should look him up. But also, I think um, th that every so often I get people who email me and they say, hey, I've got this, I've got this uh, film or book or whatever that you should read. And when you read it, it's going to like completely change your perspective. And the most recent one was from Ray Comfort. Um, and he's put a video together called The Atheist Delusion, um, taking, obviously, um, Richard Dawkins' title and twisting it on its head. And in this video, he corrals <laughs> a series of teenagers, and I guess he must have had to carefully select the teenagers. I bet there were a lot of edits done on this to get the product he wanted. Um, a bunch of teenagers who said that they were atheists, and then he basically harangues them with um, logical fallacies like um, – do you believe that something could possibly come out positively come out of nothing? Uh, and then so he says, well, there's got to be a designer because nothing can't something can't come from nothing. Someone had to design it. And he points to a book and he says, um, do you believe that this book designed itself? So basically what he's trying to do is, is um, dispel the theory of evolution. Yeah. The trouble is there has to be a beginning somewhere. You, you get yourself in a loop where eventually you say, well, okay, well, who designed the designer? There, there has to be a point at which something happened that we don't fully understand yet, you know? So um, then, then he made this huge logical leap that um, went from, okay, so there had to be a designer, therefore the Bible is true. <laughs> and then he harangued, the, harangued these poor teenagers about um, not not being right with God and the Bible. So it's a big leap to say, there was a designer, and maybe there was. I mean, maybe the theory of evolution will not withstand further scrutiny, but I'm very happy 
for that scrutiny to continue. And if there's strong evidence that, in fact, the theory of evolution um, and the Big Bang in particular is not correct, then we should change it. One thing I do admire very much about um, the Dalai Lama is that he said, if there's a fundamental conflict between what science has irrevocably proven and Buddhism, then it's Buddhism that needs to change. Uh, And I I like that about him. Um, The final thing I just wanted to say is that, so while I... I don't accept at the moment the concept of a personal God because I see no evidence. And you just look at the world around you, man. <laughs> it's uh, uh, we, you know, I don't, I don't think we should be terribly happy with the job he's doing if there is one. Then um, I do, I do think there's a lot we don't understand about the spiritual that science hasn't yet explained. And I think there is more to us than a series of neurons. And I don't claim to fully understand that and I keep probing and and being curious meditation is really important to me I discovered meditation a few years ago and it's completely changed my life it's made me a better person I think it's made me more productive Um, I used to drink alcohol and I don't anymore because I found that the meditative states and the peace I feel inside myself is so much better as a result of the meditation I do, that alcohol just interferes with it. And so I do I do explore these things. And the thing that encourages me about meditation is that you can put somebody under an MRI scan and watch them meditate, and you can actually see the chemical composition in the brain change. You can see positive things. You can see strengthening of the prefrontal cortex, which is like the chief executive of your brain that controls the quality of the decisions you make. And see, that's evidence I can use. That's genuine scientific proof that a practice that you can enter into can really make your life better. So I continue to look for evidence. And if I find evidence that changes my mind about something, I hope I'll be big enough to change it. Yeah. Um, are we going to have, will the United States have a blind president or an atheist president first? Ha! A blind president, I'd say. Do yeah, you? Um, really? Yeah. Well, you've had FDR, although FDR was pretty sneaky about hiding yeah, his disability. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know whether they would have elected him if they'd realized quite the extent of it. But uh, I read the polls, and it seems that atheism is way down the list. Um, and I'm, I'm sad about that because um, I hope that most reasonable people even if they don't agree with a lot of what I've said, will conclude at least he's given some careful thought to this. I have read various translations of the Bible cover to cover, and I can tell you that a lot of uh, people who who claim to be Christian and practice religion have not, and they don't know about a lot of the uh, atrocities that are are in the Old Testament in particular. Um, But for some reason, there's something about that word atheist, and I suppose... Yeah, people have thought about using a different word. You know, do you use non-believer? Do you use free thinker? Look, all atheist means is that you don't subscribe to the idea that there is a personal single God out there controlling everything and sort of making decisions. And I don't believe that, but I'm happy to investigate um, what else might be out there and, and, and why, why else we exist. It's a fascinating question. Yeah, I think so too. Um, in your, in your presentation to the Nori disease, you said, you talked about 
I guess what I will term, even though you didn't, the kind of some of the skills of blindness for giving, advocating, and educating. Talk about those because I, I think that's, um, I think that's something you end up needing to be good at if you have a disability. You said forgiving first, right? Yeah, yeah, forgiving, advocating, and educating. Well, I, I don't know if they come in any particular order, but I think that, hmm. I think that if you're going to happily function as a disabled person, you're going to have to learn them. Yeah, well, forgiving kind of segues us nicely, actually, out of the atheist discussion, because, of course, um, Christians in particular believe that God forgives you for anything that you've done wrong, and God can forgive others for anything that they've done wrong. And that's kind of nice, I suppose, but um, I believe it short circuits a very important process. And that is that if bad things have happened to you, or actually if you've done bad things, you know, because we're all human and we, we, we make errors sometimes, some of them more egregious than others. And I think it is really important to learn how to forgive other people and most important, how to forgive yourself because you can't forgive other people unless you also are a bit gentle with yourself and say, okay, look, this was a really dumb thing I did, but I've learned from the experience. I, I um, And I think that is one of the problems potentially with religion is that if you think God's wiped the slate clean, but you haven't really learned the lesson of what he's wiping the slate clean for you for, then you may repeat the same mistakes and just think, oh, well, you know, I can go back and be forgiven again. <laughs> um so, so the process of self-forgiveness and actually doing it without a deity involved is harder, but it's more permanent and possibly more um, meaningful in terms of the change that you make in your life. So in terms of forgiving others, it's, it's, it's a hard concept to explain um, because it doesn't necessarily mean that you forget what someone did to you. And it doesn't mean that you necessarily want to have anything to do with them anymore. I've forgiven people who I just want completely out of my life, and um, <laughs> uh, but so so I haven't forgotten. But forgiving, I think, is about mm, not letting the person or the situation have control over you anymore. Because if you haven't forgiven, it often means that you're resentful about a particular person or a situation. Um, it means that you're angry. And you know, there is a lot of science that proves that if you're carrying a lot of stress and anger and resentment around with you, it does impact on your health, not just your mental health, but it can be an impact on physical health as well. So forgiveness is very hard to do, but I think it's a really important skill to to learn. I mean, otherwise, if, if you're talking about discrimination, for example, if you don't forgive someone, um, the, you know, that then then you, you just carry it around with you and it can impact your other interactions. That's not to say, again, that forgiving means you let someone off the hook. Um, if there are legal consequences of what someone has done, then by all means use those legal consequences if it's serious enough, absolutely. And I've, I've done that. I mean, if I've been the victim of discrimination and I feel that it's unlawful discrimination, then the law is there for a reason and, um, and use it. But then when that process is over, you've got to know when to let go. Yeah, and I think I think that's um I think, you know, when you have a disability, sometimes people are just dumb. <laughs> and they they say dumb things and they do dumb things and I I think that for your for our own 
health that can be important is to be able to forgive them and move on. Um, yeah, also just have a sense of perspective, you see, because some sometimes I see people just going through airports or, or going through lines of any kind and somebody trying to be helpful and you don't really need their help. But some people can be so rude, you know, some some blind people. And um, it, there's nothing to be gained by being at war with the world. People, you can perhaps gently educate, you can gently persuade. Um, sometimes you have to be a little bit firmer if the, they don't take no for the answer the first time. But there's no need to kind of go into a situation expecting conflict or difficulty because sometimes I find that if you're resonating that kind of attitude, somehow conflict and um, difficulty comes to you. You know what I mean? If you're if you're a bit more easygoing, it's funny how it makes a difference in the way that other people deal with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, what about advocating and educating? What are your thoughts? I'm a big fan of... Um, both collective advocacy and self-advocacy, I think they have their place. And um, I've been involved a bit, was the president of New Zealand's um, advocacy organization for blind people in New Zealand. And it's made a huge difference, just as I believe both NFB and ACB have made a huge difference in the United States. Uh, but there are times when you do need to know how to advocate for yourself. And again, um, it comes back to what I was just talking about. It's nice to do so in a way that hopefully isn't too full on and puts people at their ease. Bonnie's very good at this, my wife. She, um, she's she got a real relaxing kind of way with people. And even if her guide dog is being challenged when she's getting into a taxi or something like that, um, she will eventually report them if um, they really aren't going to um, to carry them. But she just has this knack of being very friendly and it's it's disarming to people when if somebody is exuding a lot of negativity, a lot of bad energy, and you come back with, you know, look, it's no big deal. It's all fine. It's positive, you know, and, and sometimes, sometimes it is disarming. Yeah, yeah. Well, and educating is important, although sometimes it gets old. <laughs> yeah, and it's tiring, you know. I don't deny that. Um, when you feel like you have to constantly educate people, Sometimes you can just you just want to be out doing your thing and you don't feel like you have to be an ambassador for the blind community all the time. Um, so so that's that's difficult. But um, I, I actually enjoy the educating stuff when my kids were younger. They'd come home from school and they'd say, you know, we're doing we're doing blind people next week, Dad. <laughs> we're doing blind people. And, uh, and, and we said we could bring a real exhibit along. So um, I'd go, <laughs> I'd go along to, to the schools and not just my kids' schools, but others as well, and um, and talk to kids about what it's like to be a blind person and what you know, what life is like. And some of the questions that the kids ask are so cute and, and quite disarming. Um, so I enjoy that. And also I think education is important um, in terms of job readiness. Um, I do a lot of media interviews with mainstream media about technology because like, especially if there's a new iPhone or a new version of iOS or whatever, I get contacted by media outlets uh, to talk to them. And my role there, I think, is just, just, just try and say, look, there's a lot of technology out there that blind people can use that can make them very productive on the job, full participants in, in, in a workplace and in society hopefully a little bit gets through and that it might help next time an employer has a blind applicant. Yeah. 
I remember when we were when we were visiting, I had called you up to talk um, to you just about the podcast and get a. You answered one of my Almadeus Pro questions, and you told me a story about um, you were taking one of your kids to kindergarten, and I guess over <laughs> in New Zealand they're like four, and yes. the teacher um, asked your child if they were taking care of you. Tell tell that story because I I love your response. I thought that it was such a great. I thought it was a great way to respond to a situation that I think is really not an easy one to be in. It wasn't easy. We um, The kindergarten had this thing called bangers and beer, bangers meaning sausages. The idea was that they would get the dads who maybe work during the day and don't have as much interaction with the kindergarten to come along in the evening and have a couple of cans of beer and learn about what the, the kindergarten did. And... Um, Heidi was really keen for me to go to this, even though I used to actually walk and pick her up from kindy quite a bit. But so I, I said I'm happy to go with her. So we walked. Um, I was working with my with a guide dog then, and so we uh, we walked to the kindergarten. It was a really sunny evening, and um, Heidi was holding my hand as she did then, and knew exactly how it was when she walked with her dad. And we got there. And we were just milling around and she was showing me the pictures that she'd done recently and all sorts of really cute things like this. And I was loving it. Mm-hmm. And then the kindergarten teacher came over and said to Heidi, you're a very good girl for looking after your dad like that, aren't you? And, you know, and sort of made all these other comforting comments. And um, I, I was really annoyed about this, but I knew that if – I made any kind of comment at this point that I would spoil Heidi's evening. And sometimes you just have to know when it's time to shut up. So we just went on. We looked at more pretty pictures and different things that she'd done. And then we went home. And then uh, I made, I called and I made an appointment with that teacher. And I met with her in her office and I said, I just need to no, I need to tell you that I don't appreciate you undermining my parental authority. Um, a four-year-old does not look after a perfectly capable parent. And that if anything like that ever happens again, I'll be withdrawing her because I can't have you um, undermining my authority in that way. Uh, and I explained to her um, just how, you know, what, what, what kind of a part I played in, in her life. And she sort of graciously said, well, thank you. I appreciate you telling me this and I apologize. So it was far better to deal with it in a delayed way than causing a scene in front of Heidi and the other children at the time. Yeah. I, I, I just, I love that because, um, I was at a conference years ago and the, the presenter said, when it comes to disability, common sense goes out the window. <laughs> <laughs> I love that saying. I think it's very true. And I think sometimes it can be really challenging to figure out how to deal with um, people's, you know, people just don't get it. And how are you going to, how are you going to deal with it? And, you know, with your daughter and stuff like that, that, I just think, I love that story. I think you really handled it. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes, sometimes you have the presence of mind to get it right. And other times there've been, there've been occasions where I could have done things much better. But I, I have, I have things that happen like, Maybe twice. It's not a, a frequent thing, but twice I've been just sitting down at McDonald's with the kids or something, something just fairly ordinary like that. And some random member of the public comes along and expresses their 
disgust or whatever that that a blind parent is out there without supervision or that that that, that a blind person is even a parent at all um so there's a lot of educating to be done and sometimes you just have to develop a bit of a thick skin and in those situations i kind of used it as an education opportunity not for that random person who felt that it was even appropriate for them to come and talk to someone they didn't know and pass judgment but i used it as an educational opportunity for the kids and said you know what do you think of that and they're like well they obviously don't know um what 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 you can do and what blind people can do and um we had a situation a couple of years ago where my son, who was then about 14, was in a social studies class. And I don't even know how on earth this came up, but this teacher expressed the view that blind people shouldn't be able to vote because they can't see what's, you know, what's around them. And I presume he thought they can't read newspapers or whatever he thought. And my son, he got up and he said, well, actually – my dad is blind, he's stood for parliament, and he knows more about politics than anyone else I know. So he's got up and he gave the teacher what for. Good for him. <laughs> That's awesome. I um I love the way that you ended your presentation to the Nori Disease Foundation. You talked about just the bond that you would have with a blind um you know, if you were to have a blind grandson. I thought that was so moving. Um <sighs> I've been criticized for that. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. I got a, there was a blog. I, I wrote a blog post. Oh no, where was it? it? It was on the blog somewhere and somebody popped up with a comment and, and said that, um, because I made a comment on a radio interview, I think that, um, I didn't have any blind children and I actually would quite like to, because I think, I think it would be a very special bond for me as a blind parent to have a blind child and instill some of the skills I've learned about blindness. And um, it provoked a really hot discussion about um, um, about this. And, and it may have even been in the context of blind grandchildren too. And obviously I respect whatever reproductive choices my kids make. And it's certainly not my decision to make in any way whatsoever. But if I do have blind grandsons, I'm really excited about it. Um, I, I, I think it would be a fantastic opportunity to um, do some of the things that blind kids tend to be interested in. I mean, I can imagine this little kid here in the studio where I'm talking to you from doing all sorts of cool, fun things with sound and giggling about making sound play backwards and sort of adding funny echoes and reverbs and things you know blind kids appreciate that stuff in a particular kind of way because they're so auditory and i think it'd be absolutely cool and obviously with um with a blind um granddad and um step grandmum and a and a uh, a mum who is used to dealing with blindness they'll be really well set up and and i just don't perceive blindness as a tragedy i um i'd be excited i mean i'm I'd be excited about being a granddad when the time comes about any child. But if it's blind, there'll be a very special dimension there. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, one of the reasons I found it so moving is um, if the circumstances, you know, could happen and we have the financial means to do it, I'd love to adopt a blind child. Yeah. I'd know what yeah. to do. And I agree. I, I don't think it's a tragedy. And who better to teach you how to function than somebody who's doing well, you know? Years um, ago, nearly did adopt a blind child, and um, we, were, we were quite close to doing that, and and that would have been that would have been a very special thing for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I've got two more questions. You've been so awesome. I think we've been talking for, uh, two hours. <laughs> well, we'll build your hard drive now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I, my, my last two questions that I always ask everybody who comes on, um, what is, what is blindness to you? Um, I know it sounds a bit trite, like I'm sort of trotting out NFB philosophy, but but I, I do believe blindness is just one characteristic that sometimes can be a pain in the butt. Um, and sometimes it actually does have advantages. Um, so it's it doesn't define me, but it, it sure is a big influence on how my life was panned out for sure. But I don't consider it a, a, a tragedy or I don't really particularly consider it a disability, to be honest. What what do you think some of the ch- advantages are? Because I think the challenges are sort of obvious to everybody, but what do you think some of the ad- advantages are? You know, I think one of the advantages can be that you don't judge people based on criteria that are often used to discriminate. And it doesn't always apply. So if, if you're talking, there are people who can tell by someone's accent, say that they're of a different race. And if you're inclined to be racist, then you can be just as racist as a blind person as, as anybody else. But, you know, you don't know necessarily if someone's carrying a lot of weight or if they have some sort of facial disfiguration or anything like that. And actually, I um, knew somebody who I talked to for a long, long time and uh, got on with him very well. And um, then we got onto the subject of racial discrimination and they made the comment that um, you know, sometimes um, they, they felt that they were being treated in a more detrimental way because they weren't white. And I, I, I said, what are you talking about? Because I had absolutely no clue that this person I was talking to and that I had known very well all this time was Hispanic. Um, so sometimes I like to think that um, th- th- those sorts of things are, um, are of value and it doesn't always apply. Also, of course, the, the great one about being able to, uh, to, to read Braille in environments where it would be difficult for a sighted person to read. I oh, like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I also just hope that um, I, I like to hope it might make us a bit more sensitive to the plight of others who are facing issues, although I'm less convinced of that now. Um, there, there were a lot of people who just didn't care when I raised the question about the impact that the removal of the headphone jack on the iPhone was going to have on people who wear hearing aids and who um, – you know, cable, you know, who have to have um, audio going directly into those hearing aids and they may need to be able to, to charge and listen at the same time and things. And um, there is, there is, we're just as capable of a lack of empathy as anyone else, I suppose. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think that, um, you know, your life circumstances can make you more empathetic or, or they may not. It's, it's an individual hmm. choice. Um, and then my last question is um, what is the most, you know, one of or the most important lessons that you've learned that you'd want to pass on to somebody who might be listening? Just in general? Yeah, general, blindness-related, anything you want. I just, I, I love the uh, answers go, that I, I get if, to these two questions. They're always fun. Ha, if I go with my gut instincts, um, 
That's a really good question. You should give me notice of that. <laughs> Let me see. If there's one thing I would say, um, I think it's um, that question question assumptions and be prepared to think about things in a new way. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You've been so... It is my pleasure. You've been You're doing some great work here. Well, thank you. And you've been... It has been awesome. Your tutorial and the time that you've taken just to visit with me and and uh, just the help that you've given. I can't thank you enough. I'm delighted to do it. And um, I, I hope that I hope that you won't get too much um, pushback about some of our some of our more controversial discussions, but it's it, hopefully it will help somebody who's perhaps in the same place of just looking for their own answers. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.